I'm Jeffrey Wright, and you're listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Mission Daily. This is Chad Grills, and I'm joined today by Don Miguel Jr. Don, thank you so much. I almost uh, stumbled on your name. It's exciting to have you here. And we just were talking before the call. We're doing a theme week on relationships. And I was really excited that you agreed to come on and talk to us because I think some of your research and practice and teachings that you've done on this subject are just so important. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Chad, for the opportunity. It's really an honor to be on your show. And congratulations on everything you guys have been doing. So you weren't always a, uh, a pro at relationships, I think. And if I remember correctly from some of your interviews, you mentioned that you, as a, a younger man, had a bit of a rebellious streak against some of the teachings in your family. Could you take us back to some of those days and, yeah, your, your origins, maybe? Sure. Well, in regards to relationships, you know, I, I learned by mistakes. You know, my mistakes have really taught me a lot. And thankfully, I paid attention to those mistakes, even though I did repeat them a couple of times. And in regards to rebellion, you know, when you're born into a family that practices a, a tradition like ours, it's, it, it kind of becomes a family tradition in of itself to rebel against it. My father rebelled against it in his own unique way when he was a teenager. And he went to be a, a medical doctor. You know, his, his mother had been a, a faith healer, a spiritual a healer. You know, his grandfather uh, had been a teacher as well, but also a military band, a, a musician. So my father went and became a doctor. Then when I was a kid, my dad would start taking me to my grandmother's sermons and lectures. And then my father made the decision of letting go of his medical profession and became a, a spiritual healer himself, a, a shaman, you can say, or a nawal in our tradition, that's what we call it. And uh, I grew up around it. You know, I, My grandmother lived with us. My father was there. And the spirituality was all over our home, which was great. You know, I, I listened to them because I love them. You know, that's, that's the key to learning from the family. But at the same time, you know, I, I grew up in the age of MTV. I grew up in the age of, you know, internet had just begun. Uh, I listened to my kind of music. You know, Nirvana hit the airwaves. I, li- I was listening to the past mode and Jane's Addiction and things like that. And I wanted to do my own thing, you know, like uh, watch, you know, what the Bones Brigade were doing with skateboarding, uh, surfing and things like that. So I, I really wanted to do my own thing in, in that regard. And I got into going to clubs, going to music and doing academic stuff and was part of the international baccalaureate studied film in school studied studied theater and it's a minor and my whole world was going to be film you know i wanted the visual arts i wanted to do it in my own unique way and then you graduate from college you know my dad suffered a massive heart attack and i had a breakup you know the the image of myself that i had about myself was uh, an illusion i got into a relationship where i couldn't project onto her any fault it was all me you know it's, you have that one relationship where the whole build-up or like a freight train comes crashing in when you take responsibility for something because you can no longer project it onto her and that was me you know it with my dad's heart attack with that this particular breakup i picked up the four agreements for the very first time you know when i i my dad released the book when i was 21 years old and when i picked it up 
around chapter three, I put the book down because it was my dad telling me what to do all over again. You know, that's the thing. When you grow up in it, this stuff belongs in a museum. What does it have to do with my life? You know, you listen to it because you love them, but it has nothing to do with my life. And then life comes at you, you know, the bubble burst. Life will begin to teach. I picked it up and I began to see it the way other people did it. You know, I, I, I started actually paying attention to what my father was saying, my grandmother was saying. I had my own experiences. You know, my, we would go to Teotihuacan and he umped up the, the teachings even more so because I was in that, in that stage where I'd hit bottom to a certain degree and he just revved it up a bit more. It's like, all right, when you're hit bottom, your desire is to heal. Your desire is to move the story forward. And I began to practice it, you know, and... Little by little, I began to heal from the wounds of all my previous relationships, not just that one. It was just all of them. I, had to, I did the work, and I learned to say no, just as once I wanted to say yes. And I'm luckily for me, that's around, around the time I met my wife. And luckily for me, I had someone who I could work with, and we evolved together. We've been together for 15 years now. Congratulations. Thank you. And, yeah. uh, but it all, it all was like putting into practice – Everything my father taught me, not from a, a conceptual point of view, but into a practical. Like, how can I put this in my life? So the rebellion was exactly that, you know, the resisting the, the beliefs that people were projecting onto me. You know, people were asking me, when are you going to write your own book and things like that. So you mentioned that, you know, your kind of the illusion and uh, resistance to these teachings was kind of shattered by the breakup of your relationship and for your father, it was maybe, I think, a car crash, if I remember correctly. And for your grandmother, it was an ailment. And I, I noticed a, a similar uh, occurrence in my own life where a lot of my illusions were shattered by something that I just never saw coming. I was just completely blinded to. Could you talk a little bit about that? And because when the, at the moment when that's happening, I think a lot of people have been through that. It feels like a healthy relationship or any type of healing is so far off. It's hard to even go on. How can people get through those really, really painful moments where the illusion is shattered? Well, the way my father described it to me, I'm going to paraphrase something he said to me when I was 26, 27 years old around that time. Heartbreak is the moment where the illusion ends and it hurts because you really wanted that delusion to be real, but you weren't paying attention, were you? You weren't really present, were you? you? You didn't see who was in front of you because you didn't know who you were yourself. That's one thing my dad said to me in the midst of all that heartbreak. You know, it's, it's years later, I would put it this way. A moment of clarity without any action is just a thought that passes in the wind. But a moment of clarity followed by action becomes a pivotal moment in our life. That's the phrase that came to me after years of years of work. But at the time, I had no idea that, that was exactly what was happening. I either continued to believe the illusion, you know, of believing that Mexican-American image believing that image of Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. and being the son of Don Miguel Ruiz, Don Miguel Ruiz Sr. You know? And all that projected mask that I did on myself. Or I start putting the work in. You know, one of the biggest lies I ever told myself was, I am the son of this, of this great man. I am the grandson and great-grandson of all these wonderful spiritual figures in the family. It's automatic. I don't have to do any of that. The biggest lie I ever told myself was that, and I believed it. And 
at that moment, I chose to no longer believe it. And I started from the scratch. I started from the very beginning, just like someone who all of a sudden becomes aware that they weigh 300 pounds. And you know what? My healing, my health is in my hands, not in anybody else's. Start working, you know, start applying it. So at that moment, if I look back on it, and look, well, I am looking back on it, I can say that it's a moment where I be- really began to honor myself. This hurts. And that's the beginning of any journey. This is how I feel. This hurts. This makes me feel terrible. All right, this is point A. At point A, what else was going on in your life? Were you working on films in Hollywood at this point? Or where are you at? What are you up to? I was getting my master's up in the Bay Area for a a visual arts and, like I said, art design. And I was also working as a PA, as a a production assistant, you know, just driving up and down. Because at the time, I lived in in the Bay Area. I lived in Berkeley, California. And I was driving down to Los Angeles, coming back up. I was in my 20s, and I just was burning the midnight oil. I just kept going and going and going. And then got the phone call. My dad had a heart attack. And then dealing with uh, the sudden responsibility of taking care of my whole family, because all the family decision was now on mine, because my dad was in a nine-week coma. And I was my decisions were had real consequences now. You know, Not only my father's life, but my family. And, you know, somehow I began to project it onto my girlfriend and it came to a head. We broke up and I realized it's not her fault. Like, you know, I, I, the, her, her expression, why won't you let me love you, resonated in my head. And I realized that I wasn't letting her love me because I didn't love myself. I wasn't worthy of it for all these things, all this, you know, what my father calls the parasite in the mind, I believed my domestication. I believed the conditional love. So it all came crashing down and it was brutal. You know, I couldn't hide from the fact that I wasn't who I pretended to be. I wasn't a man who didn't take things personal. I wasn't a man who didn't make assumptions. I wasn't a man who always did his best. And I definitely wasn't a man who wasn't back up with his word. And it took me that to accept the truth that I was such a man that did take things personal, did make assumptions, wasn't impeccable with his word and wasn't doing my best. And, and that's when, what was happening in my life. You know, it's, it's some people may call it Saturn's return. At least some people refer to it as that. In my point of view is the moment where I stopped being a boy and life says, all right, it's time for you to be a man. How are you going to play this? How are you going to do this? How are you going to engage it? And, and you luckily just, for me, I had my family's tradition to help me. Uh, yeah, I love that story. And, th- and thank you for be- being willing to, to tell all of that because, you know, you just brought up the four agreements again, which we've gone over this week. And as I read the book, I uh, had to read a lot of these chapters and then return to them and uh, think more deeply about them because it's something where you can very easily just gloss over the surface of, but it takes a lot of, uh, you know, pain and patience to think about the moments where you know, you didn't do those things, but also to have some love for yourself and remember the moments where you did do those things. And I feel like sometimes, you know, to let go of the judgment, we have to remember the moments where we were impeccable with our word or where we did choose to not make assumptions. How did you start to build your life back from that point? How did you start to, you know, build the habit of applying the four agreements to your life? Well, it's, uh, you know, uh, 
It's the moment where I became aware of the difference between the four agreements and the four conditions. The four conditions, like you can say that, you know, people used to ask me which one of the four agreements was the hardest one for me to practice. And I used to always go back, be, back and forth between taking things personal or being impeccable with my word. It was always those two that was always difficult. So based on what I just said, the reason I became aware that the reason why they're difficult, it was I was pretending to be a man who didn't take things personal and who was impeccable with his word. That wasn't so. That's the beginning. You know, the, the telltale sign that we're using the four agreements as an instrument of domestication, you know, if using the terminology from the four agreements there, which is the way we condition ourselves to be this image of conditional love, is to judge ourselves for taking things personally, to judge ourselves for making an assumption and judging ourselves to apply for the rest of it. That's the telltale sign that we've corrupted the four agreements and turned it into the four conditions. In the same way I corrupted music, I corrupted fashion, I corrupted even being a filmmaker and an artist to a certain degree. I corrupted it. I have to live up to this image. And if I don't live up to this image of perfection, then I'm not worthy of love. So for me, when I be, really began to practice the four agreements, it started by accepting that that I was doing all those, you know, I, I was taking things personal, I'm repeating myself now, but the four conditions was how I became aware of my attachment or my domestic, to the, my domestication. You know, I got used to judging myself worthy if I live up to that image. So how I began to practice it is, first you have to start being aware of it. You know, you have to start aware of your truth, accept your truth. I am a man to take things personal, for example. All right, read the chapter, you read the concept, which to me simply means to not take things personal is to not assume responsibility for someone else's will. That's how I, I interpret it, especially my own. I assume responsibility only for my will and my perception. I'm responsible for that. Nobody else is. And I share that respect for someone else. You know, I only control to the tips of my fingers you control to the tips of yours, which means I only perceive to the tips of my fingers, you perceive to the tips of yours. To respect you is to respect your capability to say yes and no to things you want to say yes and no to. Your no is just as powerful as your yes. So becoming aware that I cross that line of respect, that what drives me to domesticate other people is to take it exactly personal and through embarrassment, through through shame, through guilt, or all kind of thing, it makes me impose my will and subjugate someone else's will or subjugate my own will to let someone else impose it because I don't think I'm worthy of love. And that's how I began, became aware of how that works in my life. So once I became aware that, you know, I step one, I accepted the truth. Step two, I understood the concept. All right, how do I apply it then? Now that I know that, the four conditions exist. Well, how do I practice not taking things personal? How do I practice an actual agreement? Well, an agreement is just, a, that word itself reflects the action of saying yes to something. That's what an agreement is. It's the difference between I want to and I have to. I have to, you can hear domestication all over it or conditioning. I have to in order to live up to an image. I have to, it's, it's kind of like you can hear obsession all over it, trying to chase that elusive carrot. And justify every action. And exactly. I want to means like, all right, I own my will. Like I'm the one in control of my yes and my no. 
And because of that, I also take on responsibility of my actions. Like Uncle Ben told Peter Parker, with great power comes with great responsibility, which to me, it means if I want my personal freedom, my control, my own will, it also comes with the responsibility of experiencing the consequences of my own choices. That's what respect is. So I can't go back in the past and practice not taking things personal in the past because I can't go back there and change a yes to a no or no to a yes because life no longer exists in the past. It only exists in my mind and it probably didn't happen the way I think it happened. The future doesn't exist yet, which means I can't practice taking things personally or not taking things personally in the future because, well, it's only my imagination filled in from, from all the what ifs, you know, what if this, what if that, my, only my imagination can answer it. So my memory thinks about the past and my imagination thinks about the future, but the only truth that exists is in this present moment. So at this moment, I don't have anything that's going to make me take things personal. So I begin to pay attention to my past. What are my triggers? What triggers me to take things personal? Well, my father dressing up in pajamas and going to a restaurant, the behavior of, uh, I tell you who you are by who you hang out with, guilt, shame, that kind of thing. What's supposed to be a boyfriend or girlfriend and what's the rules and that kind of thing. I keep going, but it's discovering what triggers me. So mm-hmm. you have those thing, things. So unconditional love is the willingness to see myself as I am. That's what unconditional love is. Conditional love only sees what it wants to see. It's what makes me project that image. So it starts with accepting my truth. I am a man who takes things personal. That's the truth. So, all right. If, there's one, if one of my triggers is someone posting on Facebook something that makes me go, I found a trigger. All right. I'm going to log on to Facebook. I'm going to scroll down. And there's the name of the person. The moment of truth is here. I scroll on a bit more. It's a doozy. At that moment, I have a choice. If I want to take it personal, it's because I want to take it personal. And I've accepted that truth of me. I am a man who takes things personal. But I also read the book. I understand the concept of how not to take it personal. And I know how to do it. I'm free to say yes to either one. That's what personal freedom is. It's a choice. Conditional love will take away that choice. Say this one, if you want to live up to it. At that point, my belief system is already compromised. But at that moment, I accept the truth. If I take it personal, it's because I want to take it personal. If I don't want to take it personal, here are the steps. With that awareness, saying yes to not taking it personal, that's when that agreement becomes alive because it informed my choice, but I'm the one who made the choice. And I made the choice because I now know that if I take things personal, it comes with a hangover that I don't want to experience. And practice makes the master. Little by little, each time you practice it, you get better and better at it. So that kind of sums up 20 years of putting into practice, or 23 years, actually, of of this book, you know, because at the beginning, I understood it through conditional love, through the four conditions. I judged myself every time I took it personally. Then there was a moment of clarity where I became aware of what I was doing. I looked for a different choice. And I found it. Now I'm okay if I take it personally or not. 
And little by little, the practice of it without awareness, slowly, surely I become a man who doesn't take things personal. And mind you, as I say that, there will be days where I will take it personal because an emotional reaction is still an emotional reaction. And that's okay because that's who I am. But as I can choose and not let an emotion blind me, you know, when I have the discipline and when I'm not hangry, you know, because when I'm hangry or sleep deprived, that decision is a little more difficult to practice. But if I'm feeling good, if I'm well rested and if I'm in a very good place, this agreement is very easy to practice. It just takes time and just, and is just remembering this is my choice. And that's how I've learned to practice this. And another example in an interview or analogy I think I heard you use is that, you know, judgment is like basically a spur and a horse where you're using that for motivation. Yeah, exactly. And that, it, it just seems like in our minds, it's easy to have sympathy for the horse that is being, you know, brutalized with spurs, yet it's really hard to have sympathy when we're doing it to ourselves. Are, are there any other strategies or advice you have for people that are looking to stop using that judgment in such a painful way on themselves? Well, you, you described it perfectly because that's how I see judgment. Judgment just is just an instrument to implement domestication. And just to describe what domestication is, domestication is a system of reward and punishment by which we model the behavior of an individual. If you live up to the expectation, you're worthy of the reward. And if you don't live up to the expectation, you're worthy of the punishment. Since we are emotional beings, that reward feels like acceptance and the punishment feels like rejection, which is the way we've learned conditional love. Judgment is that instrument that punishes us, judges us, it, it rejects us. And like you described it, it is the spur that makes me move, you know, because it, it becomes the motivator. Like if I, if I don't accept myself now, it's because I don't live up to that ex expectation. So I want to live up to it. So I'll use it. And Mind you, to a lot of people, it, it, it works. It's kind of like that drill sergeant in your head that is just spitting out all kinds of insults, judging yourself. And if you dare to accept yourself, you, you, you look at yourself as a weakling. But from this point of view, from the other side of that, of that mirror, self-acceptance is accepting myself at this very moment. This is the sum of every decision I've ever made has brought me to this point. This is my truth. This is point A. In what direction do I want to go? But the motivation is I want to. So as opposed to judgment, that judgment is the motivator, this passion, this self-acceptance, this says, what do I want to experience? What do I want? What consequence in my life do I want to have in my life? You know, if, if I want to lose the weight, I can berate myself and judge myself until I get there. But as soon as I get there, I'm not used to, not, not comfortable accepting myself, so I, I up the ante, and I keep going and going until I'm real thin, and there it is. But if I accept myself, all right, I'm going to lose my weight only because I want to enjoy life, I want to live, and I want to be able to run a marathon, then the marathon is just the excuse to get into shape or feeling better. It's just the desire is to use the energy that animates this body, that animates this mind to manifest something. At that point, an agreement is anything we make it because, like I said before, it's what we say yes to. All right, I'm going to 
run a marathon. I'm going to lose weight. I am going to let go of alcohol so I can wake up in the morning feeling refreshed and be better able to take care of my kids. And you look for those things. Like, what kind of life do you want to live? Because at this very moment, we're the youngest we will ever be. How do we want to live it? How do we want to engage it? That example you used of letting something go, I think is so key because it's tempting to say, fall into this trap of uh, I'm an addict, I'm horrible, which sometimes you know maybe that's helpful to get you out of a very, very bad situation. But generally with things, I, I think letting them go and just practicing that again and again is uh, a great way to start stopping the judgment and moving on with life. How do you think about letting go? That's a perfect question. To me, the, the best way to let go is to forgive. Someone put it nicely. This is not my phrase. Someone said it to me, and I absolutely love it, and I put it into practice. So forgiveness is the moment you stop wishing the past was any different and you accept it. It's basically when we're no longer using that spur, or if I use my brother's imagery, I'm not that scorpion that stings itself over and over again with its own tail. It's the moment where I accept the truth. It happened. It, this happened and I can't go back and change it. So I can either continue to use it to hurt myself over and over again, or I'm going to begin to use that as a learning experience, which is not through judgment, but I don't want the consequence again. Let me apply it in a different way. So for me, the best way to let go of conditional love or conditioning or domestication, whatever word we want to use, is by forgiving ourselves for ever saying yes in the first place. That's an absolute way of letting go. But there's a caveat there. It's all about being ready. If you're not ready to forgive, you're not ready to forgive, and that's okay. You know, it's, it's all about honoring our emotions. If I'm still feeling angry, if I'm still feeling that emotional poison, and I can't let go of it, that's fine. That's okay. Because it's all about breaking the cycle of domestication in the first place. Right. It starts and noticing your truth. Noticing an awareness might be the first step to actually escaping it for good, perhaps. Yeah, or, exactly. So yeah. I'm going to use an, uh, uh, an example that my dear friend Heather Ashamara said, which actually heard it echoed in a documentary not too long ago. It was, you know, at the end of a thought, there's a thought called a period. That thought represents, that period represents the end of thought. At the end of the thought, you can go in any direction. So, any negative thought you have, it's an emotional, it's an energy, it's a wave, whatever you want to use it to have that image. Let that thought finish and you put a period on it. Once you have a period, you can go in any direction of life. So then, I, then here's, here's what I add to that imagery because I love that imagery. Mm -hmm. There's a space in between that last period and the next capital letter that, to start the next paragraph. Each paragraph in a book represents a thought. Think about every thought you have in your mind as paragraphs. Some of them, some thoughts are just two lines. Some paragraphs may last you a long time. If you, if you read Karak, you'll, you'll, you'll know what I mean. But if you read that point, you have a choice. In the next paragraph, you can continue that same thought or you start the next chapter. And you that. redirect the attention. It's, it, in psychology, I think they call it re redirecting. You know, 
you reach a point at, at the easiest point. Sometimes when you're in rage, it's hard to reach, rechange your attention. But mm -hmm. as soon as that emotion subsides a bit, redirect your attention. And whatever hooks your attention, that will help you. you know, some people use music. Some people go for a run. Some people practice yoga. If you use this image of the paragraphs, that every thought is a paragraph, you can finish the thought with a period, like Heather Asha had mentioned. And it's your choice whether next paragraph, that the next capital letter is going to start with whatever that imagery or continuation of that thought, or you start the next chapter. And it's up to you. That's the beautiful thing about it. It's such a good reminder. So the thing about it is it's all it's all up to choice. You know, when we get to that point, you know, a moment of clarity is that moment of choice. I can continue to believe my illusion or I can redirect it and change the course of my life. What do I want to do? The beautiful thing about that question is that nobody else gets to answer that but you. And you mentioned... Uh Jack Kerouac there, what inspirations do you have outside of your own family's traditions and teachings? What, what other teachers have been influential in your life that have helped guided the work you do today? Oh, wow. That's a great, great question. I love that question. Well, in spirituality, you know, my dear friend, Heather Ashamara, my friend, Gary Van Warmerdam and Alan Hartman and Gina Gentry, those are people who have, you know, who've taught me. But I love Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I love Isabel Allende, Karak, uh, Descartes, Camus, Sartre. I like those great authors as well. But I actually love reading biographies. So you can say it's the biographies of uh, Jefferson and Hamilton, Lincoln, Einstein, Benjamin Franklin, and there's a series called Patria that, from Mexico that I also love. I, I like reading biographies of people who've applied in their lifetime things that have impacted our world and how they did it. I find incredible amount of inspiration in the actions of people in history, you know, be it through the eyes of, of an artist like Akira Kurosawa or the writings of Gabriel Garcia Marquez or the, uh, the exploits of Jefferson and Hamilton and the, the two of them and how their rivalry shaped a whole nation and uh, the quirkiness of Einstein. You know, I, I really enjoy reading biographies and man, I'm, 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 same, you know, I'm reading here. a biography that I, 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 but it can't hurt me, I believe. Okay. Oh, uh, David Goggins. Yeah. Yes, that one, that one. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Talk about mastering yes. yourself, man. Dude. Yes. I, yes. right, right now, I'm reading his biography, and it's been incredible. Like Yasso, Bart Yasso, uh, he's a runner for Runner's Magazine, uh, Runner's World, and his, his, his stories are also phenomenal. It's, I enjoy biographies, just to put it in short, and they inspire me, you know, because you get to see what hurdles life throws at you. Like Goggins in particular, man, he has gone through what he describes as hell, and and after you read it, you you agree with that? <laughs> most people agree with that definition of hell. Oh man, <laughs> for sure. I I, I I don't like. You know, he he had all the opportunities to surrender, and he that hasn't. Mind you, I'm I'm still at the point where he's gone through SEAL training for the third time. So I'm st and that's where I'm at at that moment. But I, I like uh, reading those kind of biographies uh, uh, and the stories. It's just inspiring. 
Same here. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And when you're reading those and then when you're preparing your your physical body, your the vehicle that gets to experience consciousness and uh, all these wonderful things, I know you do a lot of running and, and training and marathons and half marathons. And the most interesting thing I was listening to is that you don't wear headphones. So you're not listening to music. And I, I, I really like that. I've been getting back into working out more recently and I stopped wearing headphones and it puts you face to face with where you're at <laughs> and you can't, you can't lie about your progress. Why do you do that? And uh, what has that taught you? Well, the back history is that when I first started running, you know, I, I, I used to play soccer. So I, when I was young, I wasn't a runner. I was a soccer player. So my running was soccer and then I got hurt and I couldn't pivot the way I used to. So I had to reinvent how to be in shape. So uh, about five, six years ago, I goaded my dear friends to uh, my neighbors to doing a, a tough mutter. But I was still, I was still going through physical therapy. I had a sciatic nerve, and I was going through all that. But they did it. They succeeded, and I'm like, all right. I goaded them. That means I'm, I'm signing up for the next one. So I did. I signed up for it. I trained for a tough mutter, and I liked it. I really enjoyed it. I, 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 I was walking. I wasn't running from. No, they had to wait for me. I, I still, I did it very slow, but I did it and I liked it. So we went during that training, my friend Shane and I went for a run and I could barely run two miles. It, it was the most difficult two miles. So I started from the basics. I created a playlist and in this playlist, I would have one, the first song would be long. So I walked that long as a warm up. So then I started intervals run one song, walk one song, run one song, walk one song. It was that kind of interval. Little by little, I went run two songs, walk one, run two, and then I increased the intervals by three, by four, by five. Until I started, it was time for my first half marathon. You know, not, not tough mother, half marathon. So I listened to my headphones and I did the same thing. Uh, I skipped the walking one. I went to the second one and started running. And I did pretty good. It took me two hours and 47 minutes, which for me was phenomenal. You know, I was in pain, but it was phenomenal. And I ran several half marathons like that with headphones and then got to the point where my, one of my friends who I goaded for, like, well, I think it's time for the marathon. At that point, I'd completed five half marathons. And I'm like, yeah, it's time. The idea, here's the thing. When I started running after 10 miles or 11 miles, I had to take off the headphones out of my ears because they were hurt. They were hurt so much. And the idea of carrying the headphones for 16 miles after that 10th mile was just like, what am I going to do with it? So I realized that I couldn't run with them. So I put it aside because the first motivator was I didn't want to feel the pain of my ears and then carry the headphones. So I knew I was in for the long run. I took it off and I, began, I went for a run. I tell you, it was like going from driving an automatic and going to stick shift. All of a sudden, I felt in control because up to that point, the music in my headphones were driving the rhythm that I was running in. You know, if James Addiction showed up, I was running fast. If the Smashing Pumpkins showed up, I started rock walking or running a little slow. And depending on whatever song came on, you know, it, it would be the, it would be the rhythm. I, I prefer, eventually I preferred electronic music because the rhythm was much, much better, you know, like more consistent, more like mm -hmm. uh, better for, for pacing. 
But when I took off the headphones, I began to pace myself. My body dictated the pace. And I began to shift my stride, my movements to fit my body. You know, if, if something began to hurt, I changed the way I ran it. It was like being completely present. And as time progressed and I got better and better at it, something incredible began to happen. And especially in the long runs, you know, the, the long runs for me are 12 miles and above. Those, those, those are the long runs. Funny, like I started with two miles being the heart and now my base runs are five or six miles. Those are my base. It's, it's funny. Anyways, well thank you. What happens on those long runs is that around mile four or five, I can literally feel the moment where the voice inside my own mind, my, my thoughts subside, like it surrenders. Like all of a sudden, I'm not thinking. You know, like bef before mile four or five, I can think of all these junk, you know, I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to do like all this, all this anger or, or bad thoughts or judgments, all, all, that's, all that stuff roars really heavy. Why are you doing this? Why am I doing this? Well, all that kind of thing. Then or on mile five, I feel it surrender. Like it, it stops and all of a sudden it's silence, mentally, silence. The only thing I'm perceiving is my body, the traffic, the ground, the environment, the sun, the clouds, if there's clouds, I'm completely present. And then my voice, com the voice comes back around mile 11 or 12 or closer to the last few miles, mile 18. And it comes back more as a, not as a drill sergeant, but as an ally. You've got four more miles or you've got two more miles. It comes in helping me finish. And that, it, beca it became my meditation. It's, it's not just my alone time, it's my moment with checking in. Because one of the things that I love about running is that it, in real time, physically, you cross thresholds that your mind told you you couldn't cross. And when you cross them, like for example, the first time I crossed five miles and I ran five miles, it's like, and what happened is like, I think I can run more than that. Like, you know, I had that day set five miles. I'm going to run five miles. And I was approaching five miles. And I, and I said to myself, I think I can do more. What else can I do? That question, what else can I do, is the best motivator there is. Because it comes for confidence. I know I did it. What else can I do? So there's times when I don't even have to ask that question. I feel it. What else can I do today? I can run more than 18 miles. I can run more than 20. This today, I can actually run up that hill. And it's not an internal dialogue. It's, it's a truth. It's an awareness. It's like, it's that moment where I don't need to dialogue with my body to know what's happening with my body. I don't need to dialogue with my mind in order to know what's going on in my mind. I know. And I'm saying yes to it. So it's something that as time progresses, I have to say running a marathon and half marathon races are just ex an excuse. You know, the real training, the real work is on those, those 18 weeks up to that. On that Sunday or Saturday, whenever that race is, it's the day I let loose. I'm like, all right, let's see what I can do. I'm not even attached to a breaking two, mile, two hour uh, race. I'm like, my, my body will dictate what I'm going to do today. 
and that's fine. So and, cool. you know, it, you're, sometimes you're still tempted, you know, sometimes it creeps back in and like, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. And like, no, you can't. Let's, let's keep going. You know, it's, it's not the drill sergeant. It's just like, let's finish this. Let's, and, it's, and it's a wonderful feeling because then you can translate that to other things, you know, into parenting, into, I stopped drinking alcohol two and a half years ago because I, I have sleep apnea and sleep apnea and alcohol don't go. So yeah, alcohol just destroys sleep and I sleep, yeah. let go. And I use the same technique as I did in, in running to let go of, of drinking. Yeah, so that's that's my story with running. It's it's uh, I'm far away from qualifying for Boston, but I don't really care about that. I'm enjoying the whole experience. It's fun. And let's shift gears a little bit into you have a new book, The Seven Secrets to Healthy and Happy Relationships. When you were writing this book, every book has uh, an origin story or a moment of inspiration. How did you and your co-author go about writing this book, and what led you to write it? Sure. Yeah. Um, my dear friend, Heather Ashamara, uh, she's also an apprentice of my dad's, asked me if I wanted to work on this project. Sounds True had approached her to do an online class, and she had asked me if I wanted to do it. Later on, it became a book because our publisher found out we were doing that online class and somehow executed the, the book rights. But what happened is that when, she, when Heather Ash asked me if I wanted to work on, on that book, I just finished a cycle in my own life you know, where me and my ex-girlfriend had done a lot of work to the point where we forgave each other. You know, you can say that my, my first love, my high school sweetheart, she and I, we heard each other pretty good when we were in high school you know, and, and we, we loved each other, but we would try to be friends. And when we were young, we, that meant like we tried to be friends, but we ended up hooking up again. Then as we get older, like, we try to be friends, but we just hurt each other. We, we, there was no hookup. We just hurt each other. We went straight for the wounds. But every time we tried, it tried. So at one point, you know, as the previous story I was telling you about, one of the things that I, I began to process and work on was exactly that wound, you know, that wound of, that was left from that relationship, which was filled with drama, um, jealousy, infidelity and a lot of more things you know just we were just mean to one another so thanks to facebook or social media we reconnected again and we tried again but this time i've done a lot of my work i've done work within myself i me and my wife have put into a lot of practice my kids and i have put a lot of things and i would gotten some years of putting into practice you know my own work and i began to heal that so when she and I saw each other that one time, I guess, funny, and right before my first full uh, marathon, the, San, the Rock and Roll San Diego Marathon, I went down there. We started hanging out. I was going to run, run my first ever marathon the next day. And we were hanging out. And for the very first time, I apologized, not as an ex-boyfriend who's trying to hook up with his ex-girlfriend, I apologize as the man who knew the difference between guilt and remorse. I had owned my actions. You know, guilt is punishing yourself for something you wanted to do. That's what guilt is. And you punish yourself over and over again every time you think about it. But here's the thing. If life gives you the opportunity, you would do it again. That's what guilt does. Remorse, on the other hand, is when you see it from their point of view. You see what the actions you took and you see the pain you caused and you see it 
as a, you see them as a human being. You, I see it from her eyes. And of course she did that. Of course she said, I'm like, all of a sudden I owned my choices. So I had remorse. If life will give me that opportunity again, I wouldn't do it because now I know and I'm aware of the pain that it brought and it's not worth it. Like my dear friend Kirk says, is the juice worth the squeeze? Which means is the consequence worth the effort? And the answer is at that point, no, that's what, that's the difference between remorse and guilt. So this time I owned everything. Not only did I apologize, but I owned it. And I wasn't asking for her forgiveness. I wasn't asking for that. I was letting her know, I'm sorry, I did this. I see the pain that this caused you. I understand why you did it. And the interesting thing is that because of that, she lowered her guard too. You know, because it requires a certain amount of honesty of, of like lowering your defenses, especially when you have all those wounds, your defenses go up. Lowering them up and just being that, well, I guess I'm trying, well, the word I'm looking for is uh, not exposed, it's uh, vulnerable. Just vulnerable, yeah. Yeah. Coming from that point of view and owning it, all of a sudden she owned up to a lot of her stuff and lowered her, uh, her guard and vulnerability and we saw it from each other's point of view. And for the first time in a long, long time, we told each other how much we loved each other, which was the equivalent of forgiving each other to a certain degree, of course. Well, yeah, well, eventually she, she did. But it was the first time, you know, the 18-year-old version of me was like in, in heaven. But the key to being friends with your ex is that you don't want to go back. That's, that's the key. You don't want to go back. But you still miss that connection. You still have that connection that drove you. That's the reason why we come back, that, that love we had for one another was that strong that we would give each other the opportunity time and time again until that one moment we were both ready. And to me, who benefits from that is not just she and I, but my wife, because that old wound is no longer there contaminating our relationship. It's no longer impacting it the way it impacted a lot of my ex-girlfriends before her. You know, that, that wound, that jealousy, that stuff really was just wounds in comparing myself to someone else and losing every time I compare myself. That's what jealousy is. And what happened to the relationship with your wife after that moment? I'm sure maybe it was immediate, maybe it wasn't, but how did your relationship progress after that? Sure. Well, the, the nice thing about it is that Susan and I have, are in that place where we're open. You know, uh, she's friends with some of my ex-girlfriends. Sometimes my ex-girlfriends call her directly and like they, they have their relationship. We, we, we have that kind of relationship and that kind of thing. And her, her ex, exes are also the same. But Susan and I had put into a lot of work already. You know, like a lot of that poison was already healed within our relationship. What made it nice is that we gave each other that opportunity. She gave me, my wife gave me that respect and that ability, that space to do it. But the way it's impacted us is that we don't see each other as husband and wife. We see each other as Miguel and Susan who are in this relationship because we want to be in this relationship. At any given moment, you can change that yes into a no. To set someone free, that's the, as the expression goes, is to recognize their personal freedom. You know, it's, it's to recognize they have a choice. In any given moment, my wife has all the right to change that yes into a no, just like me. Our relationship only exists while we both are saying yes. 
which makes it very special that we're both saying yes to each other. We give each other that space. You know, she listens, and it's just part of the the report that she and I have. The, the way it's impacted in our relationship between she and I is that it just simply reinforces where we've come to. You know, life can happen, whatever. You know, I can still do something very stupid in life, and, you know, she has the consequences. Anything can happen. But at this very moment, she and I are in a very strong place. And that healing, you know, it's like she knows Jenny, and she knows her, you know, they talk. And it's, uh, it's a nice thing. It's, it's something that has helped us open the channels of communication, to respect each other, to give each other space, and give each other that time to work things out. You know, it, it's, it's impacted us in a very nice way up until now. Very, very cool. Miguel, how would you describe and uh, present the Toltec tradition to someone who knows nothing about it? How would you characterize it? I know it's, uh, it's a blend of artist and shaman and just you know, so, so many different things. So as a final thought for everyone, how would you present the Toltec tradition to them? Sure. Well, the word Toltec is a Nahuatl word that means artist. I am an artist. And the canvas for my work of art is my life. And that canvas will morph right in front of me. It could be, be the most perfect nightmare or the most harmonious dream and everything in between. And everything I do and every choice is part of my instrument. My body, my mind, my will are all instruments about how I create that. I don't live isolated in a hill. I don't live isolated in a monastery. I'm part of a community. I can't give what I do not have. So I'm a co-creator. I'm constantly co-creating with other artists the dream of us. But it starts with me. So the Toltec philosophy is an instrument that allows us to heal in order for us to enjoy life, in in order for us to enjoy our community, our our relationship. And it's also an instrument that allows me to see my truth at this very moment. So for me, the philosophy, when I was young, it was all conceptual. I only could experience it through reading those chapters or listening to my father or my grandmother. But the real tradition starts when you apply it in life and the results are exactly what will teach you. You will change it and adapt it to your own way. Kind of like being impeccable with the word. I've come to know it as being impeccable with yourself because it's you who gives power to your words. Don't believe your assumptions because your assumptions are just projections. Don't take things personal. It means don't assume responsibility for someone else's will. Own your own will and your own perception and always do your best to me means to enjoy your life, to be aware that you're alive and how do you want to live it? Those, I can say I've morphed those agreements because that's how life taught it to me. And to you, if you practice it, you'll morph them and you'll adapt them into a language that you can understand. And that's the beauty of it. Life is the teacher. Your actions and its consequences will shape who you are at this moment, but it doesn't mean that that's who you're going to be for the rest of your life. You will change, you will evolve, you will grow, because that's what life is. 
enjoy. I love it. Miguel, thank you so much for being generous with your time. And uh, for everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, their customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.